This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Women Who Travel, a podcast by Connie Nast Traveler. I'm Meredith Carey, and with me virtually this time is my co-host, Lolly Ericoglu. Hi! Like all of you, we've hit pause on our travel plans for now, but that doesn't mean that we don't still have a lot of things to talk about. This week, we are chatting with one of our favorite women who, in a normal month, is on the road much more than Lolly and I are. Calling in from her Manhattan apartment, we are joined by traveler contributor and travel writer Sarah Khan as part of our How I Became series. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Hi. Hi. Really feels like a whole new world. (laughs) It really does. Um... You know, just before we started recording, Sarah, you asked me how I was. And without thinking, I said, I'm good. And then was like, am I? <laughs> um, so I just wanted to ask, how are you doing? Um, I'm actually, I would say I am doing pretty good considering, you know, I feel like I feel pretty fortunate about where I am compared to a lot of people. So trying to focus on the actual good. We'll get more into life while social distancing a little later in the episode. Mm -hmm. But to kind of kick off this How I Became conversation, I kind of wanted to start by talking about the idea of being a travel writer. I think a lot of people consider it as, like, in quotes, a dream job. Um, What's it actually like to be one? It's a dream job. Um, I think, I mean, it is It is pretty great for me. I mean, it's not as easy as people think it is. It's not as glamorous as people think it is. So I do think this, you know, it's pretty it's important to have conversations like this to demystify things like that. But at the same time, this is all I've ever wanted to do. So I do recognize that I'm very grateful to have had the opportunity to be doing it for the last eight years. And so I'm not going to also make it seem like, oh, it sucks. And it's just another job because it's definitely not just another job. What do you feel like the big, are the biggest misconceptions about what you do that I'm on vacation all the time and I'm constantly having people even people who know me but also strangers on social media being like wow you're all like your vacations look amazing and like how do you afford to travel like this I'm like I don't I'm a journalist I don't make much money this is all work you know and I think yeah people don't really get that this is actually a job and I'm not just there like sitting on the beach you know drinking a virgin pina colada because I don't drink alcohol. And like, you know, I'm not like I'm actually out there reporting and taking notes and interviewing people. And I have a pretty packed schedule. And there's a lot of stress involved with it, too, and a lot of logistics. And I think it's not I mean, obviously, you put the highlights of it on social media. So I don't blame people for thinking things like that. But it isn't just this like, you know, I'm not always just on vacation. And so kind of dialing back a bit, what came first for you? Was it travel or was it writing? 
Honestly, that's a funny question because it was kind of both because I've grown up all over the world. So I, you know, moved from, I was born in Canada. I moved to Saudi Arabia when I was two and my dad worked for the airline. So I've been traveling since I was a child and I was very lucky to have that. But I also knew I wanted to be a journalist when I was eight. So I used to go around telling people I'm going to be a journalist when I grow up, when everybody else is like talking about being like, you know, rainbow bright when they grow up or whatever. And I think it's just, I've always known that I wanted to write. And then the traveling was just an instinctive part of who I am. So that's another part of the reason I think, you know, forget other people's dream jobs. This is for me, my personal dream job, because it's all I've ever wanted to do. And what did that eight-year-old Sarah think being a journalist was? Well, (laughs) funny you should ask again. Well, lucky for me, my mother was a journalist. So my mother, or she is, I guess, but she does other things now too. But she um, went to, she studied journalism undergrad, and then she actually had a full scholarship to Columbia, which she wasn't able to take um, because she was a young woman growing up in India at the time. And so when I was growing up in Saudi Arabia, she was actually a freelance journalist, which is what I am today. So I could see from her example that this was actually a job and, you know, you could write stories and be published and see your name out there. So I do think people kind of are confused. Like, why did an eight-year-old even know that word? Like, you know, like, and I think maybe otherwise I would have been like, I want to be a storyteller or something. But because I had my mother's example, I had a sense of what journalism and freelance journalism would look like. And that was a pretty cool way to grow up. When did you realize that you could combine kind of what your parents did into like the ultimate travel writing opportunity? Um, Honestly, it was just, for me, that was just organic based on the way my career was going. I never... I didn't start out saying I want to be a travel journalist specifically. I think initially I just assumed journalism for me would be, you know, hard news, breaking news, reporting, all that foreign correspondent, things like that. Um, And then I studied journalism in graduate school. And I think that honestly was the first time that I really thought of feature writing and feature editing as a possible career choice. Because I think just, I don't know, the growing up exposed to news, I was always more thinking of a hard news format. And I realized I really enjoyed my feature writing and feature editing classes and, you know, my magazine classes. And that's when I was like, all right, so I want to be on the more lifestyle side of things. And so then when I started my career, you know, when you're starting out, you kind of, I would have written for like, you know, Garage Magazine if I could, you know, you just have to take whatever opportunities come your way. And I was lucky that my first magazine job was actually at a like Lifestyle City magazine. Um, I'm not, it doesn't actually really exist in the same format anymore. I saw it as like an insert in another magazine recently, but it was called Gotham. So it's like a New York City City magazine and it had a sister publication, Hamptons. And so that's where I really, I did do a little bit of travel writing, but mostly just interviews, profiles, all the, everything across board reviews, all sorts of things, um, and really kind of got the skill set there to be writing and editing. And then after that, when I was thinking about what should my next step be, I can't be doing this forever. I want to do something a bit more substantive. And then I feel like once you've had a couple of jobs under your belt, that's when you can try to be a bit more discerning and try to do what you really want to do. And that's when I was like, you know, I love travel and I would really love to be a travel magazine. And then that's when I I went and worked at a travel magazine for a few years in New York. And then after that, when I went, I moved overseas is when I actually took the leap and went freelance. So there wasn't really like this aha moment where I'm like, okay, I'm now going to be a travel freelance travel journalist. It's just all this, like through my career, those are the way, that's the way my career progressed. During that time when you were growing up in Saudi Arabia and you know, you were in that part of the world, what did travel look like for you? What sort of trips were you taking with your family? 
Well, there was definitely always the annual trip home to um, to this. Well, it's funny to call it home because I guess it wasn't home then because I was a Canadian citizen living in Saudi Arabia, but we um, never moved back to Canada. So I used to come to the States all the time. We had green cards and we would visit family in Michigan and Rhode Island. And then on the other side of it, the other home, I used to go to visit my grandparents in India every summer. So those were like the non-negotiable. We were going there. They weren't very glamorous or exotic trips to us because that was just homecomings. And then because Saudi Arabia is in the Middle East. It's pretty centrally located. And with my dad working for the airline, we would have access to a lot of cheap or last minute flights. We do a lot of like long weekend trips to Europe or Asia or things like that, which I think we're very lucky. And we also kind of took that for granted. Like, of course, you can just go to Greece for three days. Like, why wouldn't you? Um, And then another trip that we actually did a lot, which I also took for granted is so I'm Muslim. And so all Muslims need to do the pilgrimage to Mecca once in their lifetime. But another trip that you take is you can go anytime and do a smaller pilgrimage called Umrah. So that's something also, even though like the Hajj is a once in a lifetime thing, Umrah you can do as many times as you want. But for people growing up everywhere else, it's something you look forward to and you aspire to. And it's not something you can do that easily. And for us, it was like a once a month road trip. And I just grew up being like, all right, guess we're going to Mecca again, you know? Um, And I just think, yeah, I grew up in a very different, now that I've been living away from there for so long, I'm like, oh, I was really lucky as a kid. What were those road trips like? Um, well, I mean, it's not, it was just an hour away from our house, but we would still pack up like all our snacks and everything and then, you know, get dressed up and everything accordingly and then go out there and then do the the prayers and the rituals that you do that are associated with it. And then I just remember like, you know, I'd just be like sitting next to my mom when I was really young before I really got it and just like bugging her for like gum and candy and all the things that like kids do when they don't understand where they are. Um, but then, yeah, and then I would do all the prayers and then by evening we'd be back home. So it was pretty simple. And now that, you know, I see people planning months in advance and like how you know involved the whole process is and to go there from here I'm like wow I really did not appreciate that when I had that when you look at the trips you were taking when you were younger and traveling really frequently and then look at the trips you're taking now that you're also taking super frequently kind of how do they compare well I think I actually got a lot of my travel style from my dad is something I've realized which is research everything, go everywhere, see everything. You don't need to sleep, you know? And I feel like I do that. Maybe that's why it's good. I get to travel solo so much because I don't know if everybody loves my travel style. Um, Because even before I was doing this for work, which now there's obviously a lot more pressure to see everything and do everything. Even before, like I was just kind of like, I'll sleep on the flight home. Like I am going to this amazing place and I want to see as much as I can. And that means whether that means amazing restaurants or all the culture, all the history, like I just want to do it all. So I think in that sense, obviously as a kid, I didn't appreciate it. And I would be like, why can't we just go and like, you know, watch TV in the hotel? Um, I, I do, as I'm older, I realize how much of it I've imbibed from my dad and do every day now. You know, we've talked about this before on the podcast that for Lale and I, it's really hard for us on personal trips to like turn off the travel editor brain. How do you differentiate between the two or are they not different anymore? So they're not that different for me because as a freelancer, I do always need to see if I can monetize a trip because, you know, it's how I make my money um, at the end of the day. But it is like, so it depends. Like when I go to India, that is ultimately when I go to Hyderabad, it's usually I'm going home to hang out at my grandmother's house and just, you know, go shopping and eating and whatever. So I can take that time off. But even then, it's kind of in the back of my head. I'm like wondering if there are interesting stories I can tell. And I have said a lot of them. Um, But I think it's just I 
do, when I am taking a personal trip, which I'll also admit doesn't happen that often, most of the times I do travel for work, but when I'm taking a personal trip, I try to do the research, some of the research that I would do for a normal trip as far as like make sure I'm seeing all the things that could potentially lead to a good story as well. But then I also just, I'm like, you know, I've earned this and I also need to not stress out if I don't find a story along the way because it's also just a great place to be and enjoy. You keep on saying, you know, finding those things or researching those things that could potentially make a good story. What makes a good travel story? Well, so some of it is can be really as simple as, a, you know, a great new restaurant or like a chef that's doing something really innovative or a cool neighborhood that's been evolving and on the on the rise. So I do always keep that in my mind. But a lot of it is just especially if it's a, a personal trip and not a work trip where I don't have a set specific um, list of things I need to do in advance. I just kind of see what I'm personally interested in and then see if that kind of sparks something, you know, like if I'm interested in a certain kind of cuisine or, you know, a certain aspect of the history, then I'll just sort of go and explore that. And then if it turns into a story, great, because those are some of the best stories that I can tell where I'm bringing my perspective and things that I'm passionate about into, um, you know, a narrative as well. So like, for example, I went to Addis Ababa for an article last year, which hasn't come out yet. And I don't know when it's going to at this point. Um, but you know, and Addis is a really cool city and I didn't have much time to do anything else. And so I, and, but I knew I had time to see like maybe one other place. And I, I also knew that I'll be back in Ethiopia like it's an amazing country and there's so much to see there. So then I was just like, all right, well, if I could only pick one place, um, you know, somebody had told me about the city called Harar that I'd never heard of before, um, which is apparently the one of the holiest cities in Islam. It's been just a center for Islam for like a very long time, but it's also fascinating because there used to be like a lot of Indian merchants and Italian merchants and all sorts of different cultures mixing there for a long time. And it seemed like a place I could get to and see in two days. So that's why I kind of picked that and was like, let's just see what goes. And I did have some good story ideas. I haven't been able to pitch them yet, but it's one of those things where even if I don't get a story out of it, like it's something that I'm really interested in. From Foreign Policy, I'm Rena Ninen, the host of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women. Over the past few years, we've looked at how women around the world are changing societal norms to increase their economic power. This season, we're focusing completely on girls, how they're pushing for a brighter, more powerful future, and what the rest of us can do to set them up for success. Join us for stories about girl power, young women who are fighting for change, to give themselves a chance to live a life of their own choosing. That's season six of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. What would you say have been, you know, this is a long period of time and a really big question to ask, but what do you think are some of your most memorable assignments that you've had? 
Oh God. Um, so, okay. A couple come to mind right away when you say that. And I feel like I'm not doing the whole list of places I've been lucky enough to go justice, but one of the first trips that really surprised me was I did a road trip through the Baltics. So I started in Estonia, went down to Latvia and Lithuania with a friend. And I had very, I'm actually not even, cause that was actually started as a personal trip, but like, or I envisioned it as a personal trip. And then I just pitched a bunch of stories and got it all um, covered. But then I don't even know why we picked those countries, to be honest, at that time. It was a bit random for me. It was early in my travel writing career, too. But I don't really know what I was expecting. But it was just so... Everything was so beautiful. It was so charming. The food was really good, which I was not counting on at all, if I'm going to be honest. Um, and I just each of the countries just surprised and delighted me in different ways. So I think that was actually a really exciting adventure because I had, I, I mean, I obviously had expectations because I wanted to go there, but I didn't really know what I was going into. And it really pleasantly surprised me. And then I had an assignment to do a road trip around Namibia, and I went with three women and it actually ended up being um, Women's Day around the time that I was doing it. So it just kind of was this fun, empowering trip that we took because it's a very, like you've been there, Meredith, it's a very rugged landscape. And it's every time we'd stop at a rest stop or something, people would be shocked to be like, there's just four women. Like, what? Like, how are you doing this by yourselves? And it's like, well, why wouldn't we do it by ourselves, you know? Um, and it was just an amazing trip. And I mean, the country is obviously stunning, but I just thought like that group of people and the way we did it on our own, just pieced it together. At one point, like there were elephants just crossing the street in front of us on a random highway. Um, you know, just things like that. I thought that was really memorable. And then Bosnia. When people ask me my favorite country, before I would always be like, I don't know, I can't answer that. But now in the last couple of years, I've actually been saying Bosnia because it was just such a beautiful, heartbreaking country. And I just really hope more people go there. What would you suggest people do if they go on their first trip to Bosnia? Well, Sarajevo is actually a really cool city and it's very like hip and it has, you know, really great coffee and food and culture and history and art. Um, but then the main thing, I mean, this, we drove from uh, Sarajevo to Mostar, which is probably the more recognizable city. It's only like two hours from uh, Dubrovnik. So it gets a lot of flow, overflow tourism, day trippers from Dubrovnik, um, there a lot of the Game of Thrones travelers that go there end up in Mostar, but it's just a beautiful, it's straight out of a fairy tale. Like it is the most touristy part of the country and you will see way more people there than you will in other parts, but there's a stunning bridge that is just out of a movie and it's just, it's absolutely beautiful. I promise you that we will make that the photo in the show notes. So if you want to see the picture of the bridge, uh, go check out the show notes in the transcription. One of my favorite stories that you have done was a road trip through the U.S. Um, what is it about road trips and Sarah Khan? So actually, it's hilarious that you should ask me that specifically because I hate driving. I have so much driving anxiety. It's one of my least favorite things to do. Um, I did split the driving in the U.S. trip. It wasn't, I should actually correct that. It wasn't a trip road trip all over the U.S. It does, um, people have, I, I often call it that too, which isn't accurate. I started out, it, I went to three different parts of the country. So I went to Tennessee and we road tripped across Tennessee and then we flew to um, Montana and road trip Montana, Wyoming a bit. And then I went to Minnesota. So it, I did fly in between. So I wasn't driving straight across the country. I did split the driving there um, for 
uh, the Baltics. I actually was planning to split the driving. Then we ended up getting a stick shift and I was like, oh, well, too bad. So sad. Um, so I didn't drive. My friend drove that whole one. And um, the Namibia one too, I think they just didn't want me to drive because of <laughs> like the way I make my driving sound. So uh, there were four of us. So the other girls split that up. But uh, so that's why it's really funny that you say that. I somehow managed to take a lot of road trip stories where I get the driving split or like taken care of for me, which is pretty nice. But I mean, it is the best way to see a place. You can see it entirely on your own terms. Um, you can be as flexible as you want. You can make whatever stops you want along the way. Um, so I do prefer seeing it that way, but usually when somebody's around. For that US road trip, you know, there are so many road trips that you can take in this country. How did you go about plotting that route? So that it's funny you should ask that too, because that is actually... Um, that was a very specific story I wrote for the Times where I had actually just moved back from South Africa right around um, the U.S. election of 2016. And I was just sort of like, I don't know what is going on in this country. I don't recognize this country. I'm just very confused right now. So I pitched my editor a pretty broad um pitch, which to his credit, he rolled with and helped me narrow down. Um, and I think it might have envisioned it as a series too at some point, but I was basically like, I just want to travel around America. And he was like, all right, how do you want to do it? And so that's why my idea was that I wanted to see classic Americana type places because I'd spent so much of my life and my career traveling overseas. And I felt like I didn't know my own country that well. Um, so I started out with this broad list of every possible thing I could do, you know, ranging from like car shows in Detroit to, um, I don't know, like to rodeo in Wyoming. And, and so that's kind of how, like I had this dream list of every all American sounding experience that I wanted to ever do in my life. And then he helped me rein that in. So the final list was, um, country music and line dancing in, in Nashville, which I know Meredith and I have bonded over a lot. And then we road trip to Memphis to do Graceland and see that whole side of it. And then also like the Civil Rights Museum and the blues scene there. And then um, Wyoming to do like rodeo because I just really wanted to see a rodeo. And then uh, from there we went to Yellowstone because National Park, um, which I haven't really been to very many of those. So I really wanted to see that. And then Minneapolis was kind of the wild card where when my editor and I were brainstorming, he was like, well, you're doing all these kind of like cliche type of American experiences. What's something unexpected you could throw in? And I know for Minnesota, I didn't know much about it at all other than Mall of America, but I'd always heard that it has like this really big refugee community there from Somalia and Bosnia and other parts of the world. And I just thought that was really interesting. And I wanted to explore like the refugee communities in Minneapolis. Real so that's mix. why it's like this very hodgepodge story and very like, and I don't even know how I wrote it because trying to tie all that in together was one of the most overwhelming things I've ever done. Actually, that is a really good point because I think whenever I've come back from a big trip that I then need to write about, um, narrowing down all those experiences into one sort of concise narrative is one of the most daunting things. It really is. Um, yeah. You can do as a writer. What's your process of doing that? How do you like identify those threads? So I think part of it is when I'm on the road, I try to just, I don't try to force any themes um, because that's something that's very easy to do to go into a trip with some sort of a notion of what you're going to find and try to find things that fit into that. So I do try to be very cautious of not doing that. But sometimes um, 
certain things will just start standing out and we'll just, you'll see this like repeat theme coming up over and over. Um, and the best stories are the ones that write themselves when I'm on the road. I never actually physically write on the road, but like, for example, my Namibia story, um, it was an interesting approach that I, it was, it's not like any other story I've ever written. And it was obviously trying to tie in this whole big road trip into one, you know, however many 1500 word story. But while I was on the road, I kind of had this idea of doing, I think it was like on the second to last day of like, why don't like, I kept thinking of all these do's and don'ts that were coming up in Namibia because it, like, it's such a harsh landscape and, you know, we got a flat tire and, you know, all these different things. And so I had this sort of joke listicle idea where like, why don't I do like, you know, the top 10 lessons you need to know about a Namibian road trip. Um, and like, you know, the sun will burn your eyes out. That's not literally what I said, but, you know, just kind of like, and then that would be a way to talk about the, how bright and harsh the sunlight is. And then I use that form to sort of move the narrative along chronologically the way we did it. Um, and that just sort of, it came to me while I was traveling. And so when I went home to write it, it just all started to flow really well. I, I kind of adjusted my notes to fit that. And that happens sometimes, but not all the time. So often it's kind of like what you said, where you come home and you have all these notes and you're like, what do I do? And I don't, I, I can't say I necessarily recommend this, but this is something that always has helped me is that when I always take my notes by hand in a notebook, um, which is very old school, but I also do need all my notes then on my computer. So I actually transcribe all my, my entire notebook, all my notes from the notes into a Google Doc. And um, part of it is just so I have everything obviously there, but part of it is intentional because it helps me relive the trip. And because I'm literally going through day, like note by note, word by word, exactly what I wrote. And as I'm retyping it, I can actually picture myself, oh, that's where I was when that splash of coffee fell on that page. And that just gets me right back into the mindset. And then, but when you're looking at it all together like that, it sort of helps you identify certain themes. And then I start plotting it out. And the other good thing is when this happens, which isn't also often the case, is that um, sometimes the, the, the lead just pops out when you're there. Like when I was doing the USA story, I actually had two possible different leads, but I knew it was going to be one of them. One was line dancing on um on Lower Broadway in Nashville, and the other one was a rodeo. And so when I'm in the moment, I just see it coming alive. I'm like, this is how I'm going to start the story. And then that sort of helps the rest of the story flow from there. Hi, I'm Jessica St. Clair, but you can call me Jess if you're nasty. And I'm Dame Casey Wilson. We are actors, comedians, and podcasters. But above all else, we are self-appointed masters of small talk. We have written a soon-to-be Nobel Prize-winning audiobook that will shortly change the course of history called The Art of Small Talk. You can listen to the whole thing start to finish included with your Spotify premium membership. Just search for The Art of Small Talk on Spotify. This is kind of a tangential, not specifically writing, but life of a writer question. Um, how do you maintain, we kind of hit on this earlier, but how do you maintain a work-life balance when there aren't really a lot of boundaries between those two things? Um, terribly. I'm not good at that at all. Um, but I do think it's just, I'm, I don't know how people did this really in the era before the internet and social media. I'm very grateful for the fact that I do have that. Just, I mean, other than just the fact that it makes work easier, but as a way to connect with people and stay connected to my family and friends and make sure they know what I'm doing. And I also still feel like part of their lives, um, even when I'm all over the place. And yeah, I, I, I think travel is so many people's hobbies and it is mine too, even when it is my job. So it is all one big thing for me, like whether I'm traveling for work or traveling for fun or 
thinking about traveling, like it all kind of comes back to what I'm doing at the end of the day. In the past eight or so years, have there been any points in which you've been like, I have been on the road too much. I need to have a home base. Yes, actually, that's again, funny you should ask. That's exactly what happened to me now where um, the last four years I haven't been living in one place. I've been sort of half the year subletting in New York, half the year on the road, um, either you know subletting long-term in other places or just constantly going from one place to the next. And it was fun and it was awesome. And I, I don't regret a second of it. And I did a lot and I learned a lot and I wrote a lot. Um, and it's probably been the highlight of my career, but definitely by the time I was getting to uh, like late last year, I was like, you know, I'm ready to have my own place. I'm ready to own a couch and a desk and a TV and have a home base. And I still want to travel. I just want to come back to my own place and my own things when I travel. So I think, you know, different people have different thresholds. A lot of people this whole time have been like, I could never live the way you do. And I'm like, well, I'm not asking you to. Um, but for me, this is like, this was a good time for me to do that. You were talking about the connection on social media and with your family, you know, moving around and being on the go as much as you are. How do you create and sustain that like network of support through it all? I think it's definitely dwindled, dwindled not dwindled, but like narrowed. Um, because I think when I used to live in New York originally or anywhere I, I've lived in a long time, I've always had a huge network of friends and talked to a lot of people and done a lot of different things. And even when I'm in New York, I do that. But I think when you're on the road so much and when you're kind of, you have limited time and there's huge time zone differences and everything, I think you just kind of end up focusing on a certain number of people and you kind of like narrow your core circuit of people. So it's like, for me, it's definitely still my immediate family. And then just, you know, a handful of good friends back home that I connect with, because I'm also then focusing on making new friends in the places that I am too. Um, and then it's funny because then when I go back, they end up becoming part of that core circuit too sometimes, which is nice. Have there been any people that you've met on your travels that you've then actively returned to go see? Um, yes. In some places, but I think one of the the favorite things that's happened for me out of my travels is that I've met people on my travels that I've then traveled with and gone to other places with. So I made a friend, I was living in Bombay for a few months last year and I made a friend, I just met her like once or twice and, um, and then she was working in South Africa for a bit and then I was going to be traveling to South Africa for work and other things. And so we just went on a road trip together through this part of, random part of South Africa that I always wanted to go to that I hadn't been to when I was living there. And like, I just thought that was amazing because this is somebody that I barely knew. And we ended up, I mean, I guess that could have gone either way, but we ended up, it was actually another road trip, Meredith, you would happy to hear. Um, although I did split the driving in this one. She didn't let me drive that much, I'll be honest, because I think I psyched her out so much, but I did split the driving on that one. Um, and yeah, and it was just kind of like, I, we barely knew each other. This could have been a disaster. It could have been amazing. And it was amazing. And we've since hung out now on three continents. So, you know, I think one of the things that's sort of required of you of being a journalist is to kind of put yourself out there, jump at opportunities as they arise and be spontaneous. And, you know, sometimes that can be a little contradictory of what women are told to do and how they behave um, when they're traveling alone. How have you kind of like balanced the sort of cautiousness that may be sometimes required of traveling by yourself with also that desire to explore and go off with strangers and kind of do crazy things when you're traveling? 
Yeah, that's a great question. It's definitely something that's tricky. And I do take a lot of precautions when I travel by myself in general, as everyone should, um, regardless of whether you're a man or a woman, but then especially in some cases when you're a woman. But I think part of it is I do a lot of research beforehand. And I have, I'm lucky that I have a pretty huge global social network just from where I've lived in the past and where I've traveled to in the past and the kind of people that I've gotten to meet over the years. And so I usually do reach out and see who I might know or who who people I know are, might know in other countries. So I still have the excitement of meeting new people in these places, but they're usually like through one or two degrees of separation. And then, you know, you just kind of need like a network of people you can trust when you get to a new place where you don't know anybody. And then they'll take you around and lead you around. And a good case of that is I actually went to Tunisia for you guys last year. Um, and I was doing this art and design story and I did a lot of research beforehand with some Tunisian Americans that I knew and I just had the best time and like it didn't even feel like I was working half the time because they were I was just meeting the coolest people doing the most interesting things and they were all taking me around and taking care of me and making sure that I saw everything I need to see and then also had a good time and I feel like so there's still a lot of spontaneity they were all strangers to me but I had them kind of people that were recommended to me that I trusted. Obviously, all of that has changed for all three of us in the last yes. uh, month. Um, and we talked a little earlier for a story um, that I'll link in the show notes on Women Who Travel about, you know, sitting still and being forced to stop traveling for a little bit. How has your social distancing experiment been thus far and how has it changed how you do your job? Well, it's definitely changed how I do my job dramatically because I can't do my job in the traditional sense. Um, but there are different types of writing opportunities. And it's also been a good way for me to look at different stories that I've wanted to write over the years that I haven't been able to or haven't had the time to and try to see if there's a place for those and write a few more thoughtful, reflective pieces um, that on just what this type of time might mean for people who are in this industry. Um, socially, it's definitely been interesting because I, so I had by design when I moved to this new apartment planned not to travel for a few months. And now the few months has been extended indefinitely, which I hadn't counted on. Um, and I think I've, I've just sort of enjoyed nesting and I haven't been very social the last couple months, but now I feel like everybody is so checking in on everybody that like my virtual social life is like exhausting. I'm like going from one call to another and another. And it's great because, you know, people are checking in on each other a lot, but it's just kind of funny because I feel like I'm being more social now than I had been in the last month or two. Um, and it's just, I mean, it's definitely an interesting time. I do think since I'm in New York, I'm getting a lot of people who are checking in on me that I haven't talked to in months or years even, which has also been nice to reconnect and see what they're up to and how they're doing. And something that I just started this week, actually, on Instagram Live, I've never done Instagram Live stuff ever before and never really had an interest in it. But then I realized since I have this interesting network of friends all over the world, I should do like an interview series where I talk to people in different countries and see what they're up to and how things are for them. So because I just realized watching the news, everything here is very America centric and we never really get to see what other than the horrible headlines of what's happening in other countries, we don't really see what the ground reality is. So I just wanted to connect with people and see what they're up to and how their day-to-day -day is, how it compares, how, it, how different it is as well. Who are you talking to? Do you know yet? Well, I, my first guest was a fellow Condé Nast Traveler alum slash contributor, Sebastian Modak, who was amazing. He was just doing the 52 Places um, tour of the world for the New York Times last year. So I thought it would be 
interesting just you know like I've been grounded from my travels like his is even more extreme because he was on the road nonstop, and now he is not going anywhere um, so he was my first one the other lineup I have some really interesting people coming up for India and Hong Kong and South Africa and Dubai I don't want to like say for sure just because I'm still trying to figure it out I have no idea what I'm doing this I'm not the broadcaster you guys are but um, I do I have some really cool friends in cool places so um, I'm I'm just curious to see how they're doing but I also think other people might be in interested in it as well. I will absolutely be tuning in. I think it's interesting because one of the things that friends in other countries ask me after they ask how I am is what's it like there? And I think everyone is just desperate to know what it's like in other people's cities at the moment. Yeah, exactly. And like I said, the headlines aren't really about that other than every now and then you'll see the beautiful, you know, music going on in one country or whatever, but you don't really get the day to day and the logistics and how people are really coping. And I think this is such a interesting, I mean, even if it is a scary time, it's such an interesting time because it's the only time that we're all having this globally universal experience. Um, We're on some part of the spectrum, you know, obviously some people have it a lot worse off than others, but it's just really bonding people together in a way that I don't think we've ever seen before. So yeah, because I usually when I'm traveling, I do this little Instagram game where I'm like, where in the world is Sarah Khan? And I make people guess. And now that I can't do that, I'm like, all right, we're going to do where in the world are Sarah Khan's friends. And I make them give hints about where they are and, and other people can guess. That's so fun. I feel like I've had a lot of inspiration and mental vacation on Instagram, just keeping up with all of the travel writers that I follow who are sharing stuff from their past trips or how they're doing right now. What other female travel writers do you love following or really love reading their stuff that you would suggest? There's so many. There's amazing influencers out there. But I think as far as other journalists and writers, um, I really like Sophie Roberts, who's written for us a lot. Um, And I think her work is great. And like the pictures that she posts are beautiful. But also, I think she has a new book out, which I'm actually really looking forward to reading now that I have so much more time to read. Um, I think one of my favorite travel books that I read in recent years, not too recently, but it's um, Monisha Rajesh. She's a British writer. I don't know. I don't see her that much in the States. She's much bigger in the UK, but I love her. Like she basically traveled around India on 80 trains. Um, and then, so she did around India on 80 trains. And then now she has another book that came out, I think in the last year or two called Around the World in 80 Trains, which is one thing that I've been wanting to pick up, which now I probably will. And you know who I love who's not a travel writer, but whenever she's done travel writing, I've just loved it so much, is Sloane Crosley is like such an amazing essayist and hilarious. And I just love her writing style. And whenever she's done an essay or travel article on like, you know, Portugal or Ecuador, it's like that is how everyone should write. And, you know, it's just hilarious, witty, snarky, but like in a good way. And yeah, I really love to see what she does when she travels. You can find links to everyone's stories and also Monisha's book in the show notes. So check that out. Um, So thank you, Sara, so much for joining us. If people want to check out that Instagram live series and go scroll through all of your past trips, where can they find you on the internet? Um, so my Instagram handle is at by Sarah Khan, B-Y-S-A-R-A-H-K-H-A-N. My Twitter is also by Sarah Khan. My website is by Sarah I'm pretty, pretty easy to find if you just know those three words. Perfect. I'm at Oh Hey There Mayor. And I'm at Lale Hannah. 
Uh, you can find a bunch of stories that we're putting up about what life is like around the world on cntraveler.com and what is life is like around the world right now specifically for women at womenwhotravel.com. Please check out our Instagram, Women Who Travel. Sign up for our newsletter to find out more. And we'll talk to you all next week. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. From PRX.